Hello, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for uh, joining this uh, first virtual um, roundtable dealing with Philippine private clients. So what I'll do is just do a general introduction to what these virtual roundtables will entail. Um, because this is the first of a number that will be held over the uh, next few weeks and months. Um, the virtual roundtables are really just to bring together practitioners in the region to look at pressing issues that are, uh, uh, from, from a private client's perspective, issues that their clients are looking at and being worried about in these anxious times with the COVID-19 pandemic still raging and the possibility that we may have um, a second wave occur um, later on in the year. So the idea is to try and help um, practitioners, um, professionals within the wealth management industry to look at areas that perhaps we didn't look at before when creating, let's say, uh, private wealth structures or looking at investment structures. So the idea behind this is to bring together a sort of uh, group of professionals from different um, countries within the region. Uh, the current one obviously is the Philippines, but we're also going to be looking at um, other um, countries within the region. So today we're going to have the first um, virtual round table dealing with Philippine um, high net worth families and individuals. And then later on in June, beginning of June, we're also going to be looking at the uh, Indonesia um, private client market and looking at how we can uh, determine the robustness of private wealth structures from an Indonesian perspective. And then going forward, we'll then also have the um, sort of long await China round table, which will be um, sort of enormously interesting because it's dealing with um, issues that we're, we're going to look at in the Philippines, but looking at it from a mainland Chinese perspective. So these are the, the three main um, uh, virtual roundtables that we'll be doing over the next few weeks. There'll be others that we schedule and they won't always be dealing with issues surrounding succession and um, trusts, etc. Some of them may deal with taxation and other aspects of asset protection as we go through it. Now, just one, one aspect, um, obviously the practitioners that, that sit on these virtual roundtables are sincerely trying to, to help, but this is obviously not legal advice. So the area is unfortunately quite a difficult one and we are trying our best to sort of make it relatable and make it simplified for expression purposes. But we shouldn't take these, these sorts of roundtables as definitive legal advice. And you'll see as we go through it that um, a lot of the areas are quite complex so we're trying our best to make it relatable. The main takeaway point I think that we should um, keep in mind is this. It's really trying to equip the private wealth industry participants with an appreciation of how legal systems interact. So that if we had created a wealth management structure for the client previously, and the client's very anxious about the effectiveness of that structure, then we can look at some of the interaction rules um, through things like these virtual roundtables to sort of determine whether or not there's any remedial action that we can take because although uh, we will talk about a lot of areas that are problematic um, a lot of them are solvable as well and it just means that we have to apply ourselves and the client has to be aware that they need to take active steps in order for um, you know them to get back to the, the level of comfort that they originally felt was there so that being said um, i would invite as we go through the, uh, the virtual round table um, attendees to please post questions. We won't take them as we go through, um, but we will take it at the end and we've reserved enough time, I think, to, uh, to pretty much deal with most questions that will come up. 
If we run out of time, then of course we will provide um, details, contact details for all of the um, panelists, and then therefore you can contact them separately uh, to deal with your query things. Okay, so I'll hand over now to, uh, to Mary Chan, who's going to be helping us to moderate and, and sort of ushering us through this virtual roundtable and keeping us on time. Okay, so Mary, I think I'll stop sharing and then I'll ask and invite you to begin the, uh, the introduction. Okay, just give me a minute. Let me share the screen. Right. So, yeah, very good afternoon to everyone and welcome. Sorry, yeah, there we go. Right, virtual roundtable discussion. My name is Mary um, from Vistra Trust Singapore, and I'll be your moderator today. Our panelists today are of no strangers, I believe, to everyone uh, of us here in the private client space. Um, we, our first panelist, Joshua Gilbert, partner at PJS Law Firm. Joshua is based in Manila and his field of practice are in private clients, conflicts of resolutions and energy litigation. Our next panelist is Zach, Zach Lucas, whom you all just met, partner with uh, Makati Denning. Uh, Zach advises on many areas of international, private and regulatory law. We will also be joined by John Shoemaker, partner at Butler's Law. Uh, and John obviously has many years of experience in US tax and regulatory multi-jurisdiction compliance issue. Uh, last but not least, we have Scott. Uh, Scott is a country head uh, a Philippines country head uh, from Handley and Partners. So our panelists will be providing three insights on three case studies, focusing on three key topics on divorce, succession, uh, and community property rules. I will be providing a brief background on each of these cases, um, and the panelists will be giving their expert opinion on key questions directed to them. So with that, I would like to dive right into case study one on domestic divorce, uh, succession, and community property rules. So um, let's look at this case study. So in this case study, Rosa is married to James, and both are domicile and citizens in the Philippines. James holds 70% of a Philippine local trading company, land building, as well as financial assets. James also holds real estates, financial assets in the United States. And James is definitely aware of the importance of succession planning and has established a Hong Kong trust to hold 30% of his Philippines trading company, his Hong Kong trading company and financial assets. Now, from this slide, we can see why he's taking steps to plan for his domestic uh, matrimonial and succession planning. James' daughter, Emily, is in the US, um, US citizen and resident, and his son is in Hong Kong, permanent resident, but retained his Philippine citizenship. Now, um, has he done enough in his planning and are these issues uh, he need to be, are there issues that he need to be aware? And uh, in majority of countries around the world, um, divorce is accessible to married couples so long as certain factual and jurisdictional uh, criteria are met. One of the rare exceptions to this is the Philippines. Um, if James and Rosa are not happy being married and wanna get divorced, we're gonna touch on, we're gonna speak about 
Is it possible to obtain a divorce in the Philippines? Is it possible to obtain a marriage annulment and what are the conditions? And what is the effect of marriage annulment on domestic foreign property? Um, Joshua, would you like to help us out with these questions here? Sure, Mary. Thank you, Mary. Uh, so, uh, as uh, Mary had said, uh, Philippines is a rare exception uh, because currently, uh, under Philippine law, divorce is not allowed yet. So, the only way that a party or a person can get out of a marriage is through an annulment of marriage action filed with the proper courts of the Philippines based on certain grounds as provided under our law. So, uh, for a marriage annulment action to be able to be availed of by a party, uh, the annulment can be based on uh, several grounds. The law provides for uh, annulment in case of void or voidable marriages. So these are instances where uh, there would be defects in the essential and or the formal requisites of a marriage. So uh, to name a few, uh, void marriages would be uh, when the party is below 18 years of age, uh, the, the lack of authority of the solemnizing officer, the lack of a marriage license, uh, bigamous marriages, uh, incestuous marriages, and for voidable marriages, uh, would, uh, th those would include uh, Party, parties of unsound mind and the consent to the marriage was obtained through fraud or there was vitiated consent. Uh, now, in case the above grounds that uh, the grounds that, are, that I had discussed are not attendant, the only way that the party can seek for an annulment of the marriage is through the filing of a petition for the annulment of marriage on the ground of psychological incapacity of a party or both parties to comply with the essential marital obligations. Basically, these obligations are uh, to live together, observe mutual love, respect, and fidelity, and render mutual help and support. So for a party to be able to successfully uh, annul the marriage, there will be a need for that party to present clinical evidence of the psychological incapacity. And this usually takes form, uh, the form of a psychological or psychiatric report issued by the duly licensed psychologist or psychiatrist. So this uh, incapacity, uh, to be clear, is, does not refer to uh, being of unsound mind, but only insofar as an incapacity to fulfill the marital obligations. So to go to the third, question, uh, the effect of uh, the marriage an annulment on the, the properties of James, a decision annulling a marriage uh, basically has the effect of uh, liquidating, partitioning, and distributing the properties of the spouses uh, in accordance with whatever property regime uh, governed their marriage. And it, of course, it also includes custody support of children and delivery of the presumptive legitimes. So this is basically the effect uh, of a, a decree of annulment under Philippine law. Hmm. And Josh, just on that, when it comes to foreign assets that the, the, the couple had, 
um, is it right that, that, let's say, Rosa would seek to apply um, some of the property regime to external assets? She could try and do that as if it were a, uh, a bona fide community property regime. Yes, uh, the property uh, includes uh, all properties, uh, whether situated in the Philippines or abroad. Right. I mean, we're going to get to this later on on community property, but I think that's a, a crucial point that even if you have a marriage annulment in the Philippines, it can still give rise to legal rights uh, with respect to foreign assets on the uh, effectively annulled parties. When it comes to domestic succession matters, I think the law is obviously very different between common law and civil law jurisdiction. Now, we will look at if James Pass intestate and the distribution of his domestic assets. How will Philippine succession law apply? And is the surviving spouse, um, Rosa in this case, entitled to an automatic false hair share of the estate? And are the children, Emily and uh, the son, who are not staying in the Philippines, entitled to automatic false hair, ship, uh, false hair shares of the estates in the Philippines? Uh, I think this question is obviously to Joshua. <laughs> Can yes, you help? Mary. Yes. Okay. So uh, as uh, we can see in the in the diagram, James is a Filipino citizen, and therefore Philippine succession laws apply to all of his properties, whether located in the Philippines or, or abroad. Now, under Philippine laws, uh, there are two kinds of, of succession: uh, testate or interstate succession. Uh, in interstate succession, uh, the deceased uh, would have left a last will and testament, which will need to be probated in court, while on the other hand, in intestacy succession, there is no will that has been left, and the law itself provides for compulsory heirs or forced heirs who shall inherit based on respective legitimes that have been fixed under the Civil Code of the Philippines. So. To go to uh, the next question, whether the surviving spouses and the children, the surviving spouse and the children uh, are, are entitled to automatic force air shares. Uh, as had been briefly introduced by Mary, uh, Philippine law, Philippines is a civil law jurisdiction and under Philippine succession laws, Rosa and the two children are compulsory heirs or, or forced heirs of James and therefore entitled to, to legitimes. Now, maybe it's good to illustrate this through a, a, an example. So if James uh, left a will, one half of the estate goes to the two children and, and Rosa. And uh, Rosa shall be entitled to the same share that the, that the two children will get. The remaining portion is what you call the free portion which can be bequeathed by James by will to whomever he pleases. So in this case, 25% uh, goes to Emily, 25% goes to Arnold, 25% goes to Rosa, the surviving spouse, and 25% is the free portion bequeathable by will uh, by James. Now, on the other hand, if James died without a will, the whole estate of James will be divided equally among Rosa, uh, Emily, and Arnold, with each of them getting one third each, 
portion as their respective legitimes. Right. Okay. And that would apply to the um, just as looking at it. So as we as we go forward, it, the the way in which the forced air regime will apply, it doesn't make any distinction between movable assets like the the bank account and investments and the land, because James owned land in the Philippines. So that would also be split in the same proportions that you mentioned. Yes, uh, all properties will be split equally, uh, whether it's real property or personal property, intangible property, those will be split equally between the heirs. Right, and then in the case of Emily, because although she's a child, she's also a US citizen. So she's no longer a Philippine citizen. With respect to the land, can she also share um, effectively a third or, or, or a quarter, depending on the circumstances? Yes, uh, well, under a, an intestacy set, uh, scenario, meaning if James uh, died without a will, yeah. uh, Emily can definitely uh, own the land because that is an exception uh, for foreigners uh, owning land here in the Philippines. Right, and that's because James was, her, her father was a Philippine uh, citizen is that is that right yes that's correct right. Right. okay I, I think i have one question for joshua and then does it make a difference if uh, emily's uh illegitimate children oh yes mary uh thank you for that question that is an interesting question uh actually uh if there is an illegitimate child in the picture so whether it is emily or some other child uh, the sharing will definitely change because under Philippine laws, uh, an illegitimate child uh, is entitled to a share of one half of what an, a legitimate child gets. So uh, the, the sharing will definitely, definitely change if you put an illegitimate child in the picture. Right. And then obviously Rosa has to be a lawful spouse as well. So there's oh, yes. no common law spouse type scenario. No cohabitees. That's right. That's right. 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 Okay. okay. So now moving on, I, obviously that's the portion of the trust. Um, we're going to just discuss about the possibility are the estate has able to call back the transfer of the property made by James to the Hong Kong Trust. What are the trust shares ownership in the Philippine trading company? Uh, is that protected? And does Hong Kong law provide anti-force hair trust protection. Um, can we have Zach to cover the portion? Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, Joshua, um, just to be clear on the clawback, because the, the, the provisions that apply, um, the protective provisions that apply in Hong Kong, I just need, I'll need you to just validate that they actually, within the Philippine sort of Spanish civil law system, that you do have the concept of being able to claw back transfers um, made by James into the Hong Kong Trust previously. Yes, uh, yes, Zach. Uh, so uh, because of this concept of, of forced heirs, forced share uh, legitimes uh, under Philippine law, uh, there is a, a danger that if James, the, the property that or the properties that James put up to establish the trust would have been excessive such right. that it would have eaten up on the forced heir shares or, or the legitimes of the compulsory heirs. In that case, the trust may be open to attack from the heirs 
on the ground that uh, such transfer uh, was in the nature of an inefficient donation made by, by James during his lifetime, uh, which effectively impaired their legitimes. So uh, the nature of the trust as well that was established by, by James will mm -hmm. also be significant, uh, important to consider because uh, it determines whether it, would, it should form part of the estate or not. So as a general rule, uh, if the trust is an irrevocable trust, uh, it is considered as no longer forming part of the estate of James uh, because it is considered as a donation having been made during the lifetime of, of, of James and James lost control over the property at that point of transfer. On the other hand, if the trust is a revocable trust, uh, it is generally considered as still forming part of the estate of James as control and administration over the property would continue to remain uh, with the truster, in this case, uh, James. And therefore, in the case of a revocable trust, uh, it will be open to an attack by, by the compulsory heirs. Yeah, and just to be clear on that, um, Josh, is it the case that what we're looking at is, in this simplified version, basically James has 25% of his estate to give away in our example here. And what we're going to do is we're going to tally up all of the gifts made plus the value of estate to work out whether or not he breached that 25% limit. That, is that what we're doing when, we, when we're working out the basis of a clawback? Yes, that's correct. So uh, it is good for James to carefully look at the percentages when doing the transfers of the properties to, to be sure that it does not breach the, the legitimes of the heirs and uh, stays within the 25% uh, bequeathable by will or the free portion that he's entitled to. Right. Just the aspect on the trust, owning the Philippine Citist trading company shares, is it, is it the case on a, on a clawback that we can go directly to the Philippine court to enforce directly on that company or would we have to round trip through effectively the Hong Kong courts? Well, uh, I think in this scenario, the trust having been established in Hong Kong, uh, the presumption would be the trust is governed by Hong Kong laws. So uh, it would probably be the case that uh, any action against the trust would need to be instituted in Hong Kong and a, a court of uh, jurisdiction in Hong Kong would issue a decision with respect to the clawback claim. And if ever that decision comes out, then that decision should be brought here in the Philippines to be recognized and enforced through the filing of a proper petition in court. Right, right. I think the, the difficulty, just getting to, to Mary's question to me, the difficulty is that um, Hong Kong, through its amendment to its trustee act, has provided protections against um, forced airship claims so um, provided the conditions are, are met within Hong Kong for validly constituting or having capacity to create Hong Kong trust, certainly that would be the case with respect to the trading company, would have to look at the, the, the transfer of shares of the trading company in the Philippines and the capacity to do that, then Hong Kong would not recognize the forced air claims against the trust. So what could happen is you'd have a 
effectively a judgment in the Philippines seeking to uh, enforce those clawback rights, which wouldn't be necessarily recognized in Hong Kong because of that protection that they have um, they've instituted. And it's the same in Singapore as well, although the Singapore conditions for it are a little bit more involved than the, um, the Hong Kong equivalent. So I think in the round, if, um, if there's a frustration in Hong Kong because they're not recognizing the forced air rights, which is probably likely the case, then the question would then rebound, what about direct enforcement against the company and, and, and sort of judicial order uh, forcibly transferring the 30% shares to the heirs if, if it was breaching the, uh, the clawback provisions and whether or not that's possible. If there's been no um, joy in Hong Kong trying to get this through normal channels. Yeah, um, I think Zach, that there are also considerations. I mean, other than the Hong Kong trust assets, though James actually do have assets within the U.S. Yeah. that also have to take into consideration. Um, and I think for the U.S. assets, we need to understand which succession law will apply to the U.S. investments account. Um, and which succession law will apply to the U.S. land as well? And is it possible for James, um, the deceased, to give his U.S. property by will? And of course, the last, which is quite uh, an, um, a point that will be of key interest to many, is will there any consequences on the U.S. assets? And I think, John, this question is definitely for you to answer. Great. Thanks, Mary. Um, so from a succession perspective, I think it's important for everyone in the audience to understand that the U.S. Um, regulates the law of succession on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, we'll come to estate taxes in the last question. Those are done on a federal level and a state level, but the law that determines um, jurisdiction, definitions of property, and how that property is treated from a succession perspective is going to vary from state to state. So, you know, the first thing to analyze from a U.S perspective is where is the asset located. Um, once you figure that out, then states tend to have a strong distinction in how they treat movable versus immovable property. Um, so in this example, you're probably going to come up with a much stronger position to uh, impose U.S. interpretations, definitions, or law on the land than you are going to come to in regard to the depository account. Now, all of that presupposes that there is something in contention. Um, if there's not anything in contention, and it's simply a matter of um, some type of uh, testate or intestate succession in the Philippines being presented to uh, the U.S., a tendency to respect that, like I said, absent a contention, but the beneficiaries who may not be getting something under the forced airship rules may want to look at the individual state rules to see if they can raise a challenge. The U.S. doesn't tend to have forced airship rules as we know them. There is one state uh, Louisiana that has a civil law background, but even they in the 80s kind of got rid of the forced airship law um, concept. Uh, there tend to be statutory protections, but those go more towards spouses than towards children. Minimal state interference from a child level 
to force someone into giving something through succession to the children. Uh, the last point to mention, I think that's relevant for everybody is this estate tax issue, and hopefully everyone's aware of this concept. Um, James, if he held those assets in the U.S. directly, if there were U.S. securities in that account per se, and then in the U.S. land, would be exposed to the U.S. estate tax with only a 60,000 U.S. dollar exemption. So that's a 40% estate tax that can gobble up a lot of the equity in those assets that he otherwise would intend to pass on to his family. There's a quite simple planning solution during James' lifetime if he chose to hold those assets in um, a properly incorporated and run um, offshore company, um, he could have avoided that uh, U.S. estate tax exposure. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to ask on the U.S. investment account, just to just to confirm, is it right that the U.S. Um, law would seek to respect the Philippine forced air rights to the investment account, or would it, or could he pass it by will, completely contrary? to the forced air rights on the Philippine law on, in respect to the U.S. account. Yeah, so that, thanks for, for raising that, because that gets to the heart of the contention issue that I raised. Um, it is possible, perfectly valid and possible, for someone under a U.S. will to um, make whatever, they have freedom uh, to make whatever decisions they wish in regard to, the, to those U.S. assets. So it's possible if James had taken advice, I won't say good advice because of what I'm just about to, to say, but if he'd taken advice and done a separate U.S. will, he could have disposed with them as he chose. But a good advisor, hopefully, would spot the uh, potential conflict and would reach out, like, like I would do in that instance if clients came to me, I reach out to Joshua and say, okay, let's work together on this because I don't want to, to come up with a solution that works completely under U.S. law, but then is contrary to Philippines law, subject to a challenge, eats up legal fees and time costs for the executor that James didn't intend and isn't really the way that he wanted those assets to pass in, in, in complete and total um, to the next generation. Right. And does that apply equally to the the U.S. land, or would it be this is something to do with the U.S. only? There wouldn't be a Philippine interaction. There, there's not going to be any black or white answer. So there's not going to be a, well, it right. will for this and it won't for that. What I'd say is the tendency is it's much more likely to be a strong U.S. interpretation and enforcement on the land because it's immovable, whereas little less likely to have that absolute adamancy, adamancy and, and, and inability to be to be penetrate that decision to be penetrated or overruled by uh, a foreign jurisdiction when it comes to movable property like the bankable assets in that depository account. Because right. Josh, from your side, um, Philippines would apply a sort of global standard, wouldn't they, in terms of their application of the succession laws, regardless of where the um, the assets are based. That's correct, Zach. Uh, our civil code provides that. Uh, the interstate and testamentary successions are governed or regulated by the national law of the person whose succession is uh, at issue. And this is so, uh, whatever the nature of the property may be, and regardless of wh where the, the property may be situated, whether in the Philippines or, or abroad. Right, right, okay. And on the estate tax, um, are we gonna have a situation of double taxation here? Well, uh, under the eyes of Philippine law, uh, since James is a, uh, is a Filipino citizen and at the same time a resident uh, Filipino citizen here in the Philippines, all of his properties, whether situated in the Philippines or abroad, are subject to estate, Philippine estate taxes. 
However, this would be subject to claiming of tax credit for whatever taxes he may have paid or uh, the heirs may have paid in, in the United States. But I'm, I'm not sure whether U.S. has the same crediting privilege. Uh, probably Jan can uh, jump in on that. Sure. Presently not. The U.S. has a very limited amount of, of jurisdictions that it has um, that, that credit agreement in place. So uh, in this situation, it would be full payment of U.S. tax and then a credit in the offshore jurisdiction. Okay. Okay. Um, so under the Philippines absolute um, community of property section of court, I think all properties, whether acquired before or during marriage, are considered conjugal. So, um, Joshua, can you explain community property rules and is there a possibility um, to vary this rule by using pre or post? Uh, nuptial agreement. Okay, thank you, Mary. So under uh, Philippine uh, laws, unless uh, it is provided in a marriage settlement or a marriage agreement, uh, the default property regime is the community, absolute community property regime. And when you say absolute community property, all of the properties that were uh, owned by the spouses before the marriage uh, and at the time of the marriage and after the marriage are all owned equally by the spouses. So 50-50 share. The, there are of course exceptions as to uh, what property will not constitute community property and uh, this would be property acquired by during the marriage by gratuitous title by either spouse. So this would include inheritance, properties inherited by either spouse from, from the parents. And uh, another exception would be property for, for personal use. Uh, that would also be an, an exception. So for the second question, yes, uh, it is possible for the spouses to enter into a prenuptial agreement under Philippine laws. Uh, the only uh, condition that uh, needs to be complied with is that this prenuptial agreement uh, must be executed, signed, uh, and entered into by the parties before the celebration of the marriage to be effective. So if it is executed after the marriage, then it is no longer considered as valid. So the, this prenuptial agreement can, uh, can provide whatever property regime the, the spouses may want. It can be a combination of uh, community property and separation of property or conjugal partnership of gains. The spouses have a free hand of whatever mix they would want uh, of their property regime. So uh, on the last point, uh, whether there is a possibility of a post-nuptial agreement, uh, yes, uh, there is a chance for spouses to have a a post-nuptial agreement, so to speak. Uh, and this can be done by way of a, the filing of a petition before a family court for the dissolution of the community property of the spouses or whatever uh, property regime they have chosen to, to govern their, their marriage. So this would involve court intervention, of course. So after 
do hearing, uh, the the court will issue a, a decree uh, dissolving the whatever community property regime the spouses may have. And after that, the spouses will now have a complete separation of property regime. But do note that uh, in this instance, both spouses must need to agree to voluntarily dissolve the property. If only one spouse would want a dissolution of the property regime, it would not work. Uh, under this provision of law, it should be a joint effort by, by both of the spouses. So just, um, just to tie this back to the succession, because in this instance, James is being shown as, as deceased. So what we're saying is, uh, absent the nuptial arrangements, effectively Rosa should have 50% of the estate, and it's only the 50% the held by James that is then fragmented across the heirs in the percentages. So if there's no will, then it's effectively a third share each to Arnold, Emily, and Rosa. Is that, is that correct, Joshua? Yes, that's correct. So upon the, the demise of James, automatically uh, Rosa gets 50% of the whole estate of, of, of James. And only the 50% the, uh, would be split up between the children and, and Rosa. Right. Okay. Um, well, so on the community property, um, in terms of the Philippine um, trading company shares, is it possible to make a community property claims um, against the Hong Kong Trust that is holding the 30% of the trading company shares. And um, what about the trust shareholdings in the, obviously, the Philippine company we spoke about? And does Hong Kong have anti-community property law protection uh, on Philippine assets? Um, Josh, would you like to share with us if that's something that uh, we can we can look at in terms of the Hong Kong Trust holding the assets. Yes, thank you, Mary. So uh, a potential claim may arise from, uh, from Rosa as the surviving spouse uh, on the uh, ground that the property transferred by James uh, to the Hong Kong Trust, constituting the Hong Kong Trust, is actually community property. And hence, uh, she has a 50% share in the same including whatever income or fruits it may have uh, realized. So the possibility, yes, there is a possibility of the community claim by Rosa. And therefore, what would be a practical advice or solution in, in this instance? So number one, uh, one must ensure that the property used to establish the trust is either exclusive property of it's an exclusive property of that particular spouse. And therefore, meaning exclusive property, he or she has a free hand uh, over that property, whatever he wants, he or she wants to do with that, uh, he is free to do so. So number two, uh, if you're not uh, confident or if you know that it's not exclu your exclusive property, then get the consent of the other spouse. I think from the Hong Kong perspective on anti-community property laws, I think I um, haven't seen any jurisdictions that try to block this. So if we look at the um, ordinary sort of trust protections in places like the Cayman Islands, uh, BBI, Jersey, Jersey, etc. Um, and of course, Hong Kong in this case, 
a community property claim is effectively matrimonial property. So it's an, not an inheritance-based claim. It's basically saying that that, was, that particular asset was owned jointly. And it's the courts recognizing that, that you can own through the uh, sort of matrimonial domicile assets jointly in the jurisdiction. So it's fairly old law that, um, that these are not subject to the protections that would usually be applied on marriage breakdown and sort of the divorce courts sort of award of um, ancillary relief. These are separate. These are proprietary rights by virtue of the marriage um, uh, being recognized. So in effect, when we create these offshore trusts um, and we're dealing with married couples, as, as you said, Josh, you, you need to be clear what property is being put in there and if there are any relevant consents. So I, I suppose um, when James was creating that trust, he could have got consent from Rosa to the transfer in and she could have released any rights in that, um, in her half share or whatever it is, if they have a nuptial agreement um, going forward. Is, is that right, Joshua? Yes, that's correct. And when she does that uh, consent, are we doing that in front of notaries or are we doing it in, in the court or is it just between the parties that they do that? What's the, um, what's the procedure? Well, uh, it is best to have a, a written document and a written and a notarized document as well. The reason being a notarized document would bind third parties and not only the, uh, the parties to, to the agreement. So uh, it's practical for uh, that waiver or consent to be contained in a written and notarized document. And it's not for consideration, it's not a contract, it's just a, a sort of gratuitous waiver, is that right? Yes, yes. Right, right. And should the parties have separate legal representation when they do this? Definitely, yes. I would definitely advise that they have uh, separate legal representation. So what about the case where we already have a Hong Kong trust and we've had it for years, for 10 years, let's say, and none of this was gone through when it was set up. And of course, there is a community claim in there somewhere. How do we deal with that now? So how, how can we, I mean, it's a delicate subject to broach anyway. I can imagine it being a fairly difficult one, right? But how do we get that waiver now? Can we do it anytime? Uh, well, I, the ideal point, Zach, would be at the point of transfer of the property, yeah. the trust. So uh, other than that, uh, I don't imagine uh, having another opportune time to right. get that, that, that waiver of consent. Right. Zach, as a trustee, um, if the trustee were to obtain such waiver at the par prior to transfer of the assets, uh, with Rosa having uh, consent for mm -hmm. James to transfer the assets to the trust, will that be something that is workable and, and is able to protect the assets within the Hong Kong Trust. Yeah, because the origination of this claim is going to be through the matrimonial domicile in the Philippines. And if we're following Philippine law, because that's the, the, the law that applies to the marriage, that's where it was celebrated, then that ought to be, because it will originate if there's an attack, it will originate from the Philippines. But if it's not being recognized in the Philippines as a, as a matrimonial right, and I think we'll be, we'll be okay on the defense in Hong Kong. It's just the worrying thing is there may be a number of trusts out there that have this where there is a community element embedded in the trusts 
property and um, we're going to find it difficult to try and remediate that now by, by trying to come to some arrangements. I think that's that's the unfortunate bit here. But, yeah. but Joshua, is it possible that we just, um, the parties just go through the procedure of waiver, even though it happened years ago and take their chances? I mean, what, what can they do practically to try and solve this problem? Yeah, uh, in that scenario, Zach, I think uh, what can be done would be a sort of a ratification uh, by, by Rosa of the act of James transferring the property many, many years ago. Right. So, uh, that can also be, be done, I think. Right, right. Okay, okay, very good. Okay. Now, um, so coming to the US assets portion. Now, John, is it possible um, to make a Philippine community property claim against the US investment account? And uh, as well as the uh, property claim against the US land? Yes, yeah. thanks, thanks, Mary. So the answer is yes, it is possible. But I think what the question really is getting at is how likely is it to succeed? Um, and again, that goes back to a state by state analysis. Some states have more robust community community property approaches to their definition of marital property. Prime example that I think is known internationally would be California. California has a, gr a very aggressive community property approach from a marital property definition. Um, other states, uh, maybe in the center of the country, like say um, an Oklahoma or a Kansas or Nebraska, might have far less uh, robust marital property definitions from a community property assumption perspective. So yes, it's possible. The likelihood is going to vary from state to state um, and really reiterates what I raised in the first case study that whenever you're dealing with U.S. assets, it pays to plan ahead of time. Don't make an assumption about how your succession is going to work or the potential divorce, even under a, a prenup and a postnup. Um, don't make an assumption about how those are going to be treated. Talk to U.S. counsel, identify which state is going to have potential jurisdiction, see if those rules in that state are amenable to a challenge, uh, and then maybe plan around that so that you don't get an unintended consequence of what you were trying to do when distributing that property upon your passing. Right. And just quickly clear on that, John. So you're saying that from a, um, a Philippine perspective, um, US, the, the US courts would respect US um, sort of law on land, or would they apply Philippine sort of um, community property rights to split it half? Yeah, so I think our first, our, our first, our first entry threshold question is the contention issue that I that I raised. There's nothing in the U.S. law that would prevent a non-contentious uh, awarding. So they're not going to simply say, look, because the law is X in this state, we're not going to distribute it the way that a foreign jurisdiction is under succession planning. If there is a contention, though, from state to state, you're going to find a big distinction. A California piece of property is going to be treated very differently than, say, a Florida or Texas piece of property and that court's willingness to enforce or stand up against a challenge to um, a foreign order of, of, of succession. Right, right. Case study one, generally it's just focusing on domestic. Uh, so for case study two, we are going to touch on foreign on same three key topics on divorce, succession, and community property law. Now, um, for this case study, um, Nelson, um, who is married 
with Eleanor, and they have a children, uh, a daughter, Angel, and three of them are United States uh, permanent resident, uh, resident, but they kept their citizenship, um, Philippine citizen. Um, they have another son, Justine, who remains in the Philippines uh, and didn't follow them to the U.S. Um, and Nelson kept his trading company in the Philippines uh, active. At the same time, he also set up a Philippine trust now, um, which actually purely holds financial assets. Uh, he, he also actually set up a Singapore trust and a Hong Kong trust, holding offshore assets um, and purely financial assets as well. Now, um, if you're gonna move on to foreign divorce, now if, James, if Nelson and Eleanor were to divorce, um, and just for clarity, they, their marriage is in the US. Mm -hmm. Now, so the divorce will be in the US. So um, maybe for this, for Ken, based on the which US court will exercise jurisdiction in divorce proceeding, I mean, uh, possibly John can answer this, and whether US courts has the power to vary matrimonial property rights, and is US uh, pre or post nuptial agreement legally valid, you know, uh, versus to Philippines assets. So John, can we have you answer this couple of questions? Sure, sure. thanks Mary. So again, with divorce law, it's, uh, it's based on a state-by-state -state, um, implementation and divorce courts operate on a state-by-state -state basis, not federal. So we'd be looking to determine which state um, is going to claim jurisdiction over the divorce proceedings. Um, each state tends to have a, a domicile or residence approach to this but they vary widely how long you have to be there to establish that. It can be as short as two weeks in some jurisdictions, as long as six months or longer in, in, uh, in other jurisdictions. There's a general tendency in the U.S. to want to avoid being seen as a divorce mill where someone just tries to claim residency in that to take advantage of the rules in that jurisdiction. Um, so we, we'd analyze where um, Nelson and Eleanor were if, uh, this is often the case with dual citizens or expatriates, if they're not living in the U.S. in a particular state, um, the tendency, the, the U.S. from a citizenship federal perspective, you're always domiciled if you're a U.S. citizen in the U.S., regardless of where you're living. The states don't operate on that exact same definition. Most likely outcome is we look at the last place, they, the last state they lived in in the U.S. to try to grab a jurisdiction for that if they're living outside. Um, when the divorce starts. On variance, the U.S. does have the common law variance um, power within its court system, although it tends to not be used to the extent it is under the U.K. system. I know it's much more prominent in the U.K. system, not in the U.S. If you're going to see a challenge to a trust um, or, or, or a prenuptial agreement or any type of property assignment, sham or fraud is going to be your primary or first challenge to it. And then that leads nicely into the last question there about pre and post nuptial agreements. Um, the, the U.S. tends to have four, I'd say they're guidelines like Joshua mentioned, but they're a little stronger than that. They're, they're almost absolutes, not codified maybe statutorily in every state, but the four things to really look out for uh, both in pre and post nuptial agreements I guess it's three for post. You'll see in a second. Each party has to have independent counsel. That's really 
almost absolute. They, they each have to be represented. There has to be full forthrightness. So each side needs to come and say, this is what I have. This is what I'm bringing into this or what I have right now. If you hide an asset from that discussion, it, it really is going to avoid the entire discussion and not make, make it be honored uh, afterwards. Um, you should avoid any custody or duty elements. So don't talk about who gets kids or what happens with the kids, or I have a responsibility to take care of this aspect of the marriage, like the finances or cooking and cleaning or whatever. Those things are not valid in a pre and postnuptial agreement arrangement. And then lastly, and this one's only for the prenuptial, is rule of thumb, about six weeks out before the marriage day. Do not wait until uh, you're rushing to the, the church to get married. That will be seen as kind of an undue influence on the party that's going to be attempting to challenge it later. Okay. So um, for the next slide, so um, in this case for Nelson, uh, John, can the U.S. courts seek to vary the terms of the Philippines Trust in this case? Um, yeah. yeah. Like I, meant, like I mentioned earlier, variance is, is possible under the common law system in the U.S., just not as, uh, it, it doesn't occur as much, it's not a, a tool that is used as much in the U.S. as it is in the U.K. system, as many practitioners will be familiar with, and Zach that deals with regularly. And, and Joshua, in your view, um, will the Philippine court enforce a U.S. court uh, order to vary a Philippine trust? Uh, yes, uh, that is a possible uh, scenario, Mary. Uh, in the Philippines, uh, Philippine courts can uh, recognize and enforce uh, foreign judgments. So if a party is successful in, in securing a U.S. court uh, decision or order which uh, varies the Philippine trust based on uh, whatever applicable law there was in, in the U.S., then uh, it can be enforced here, but again, subject to uh, the proceedings uh, before the court uh, for the court to, to validate uh, the, the decision that was issued by the foreign court. Okay. Um, in this case for the um, U.S. court, uh, would the U.S. court seek to divide the shares in the Philippine trading company, which I think there are some restrictions. Yeah, I would say they, they could. Um, probably reserved for the most, only the most egregious examples where they're trying to write an obvious wrong um, under the local definitions or treatment. Um, and then I, I, I suspect the next question will ping pong back to Joshua. Would that be, would that be respected? Yes, correct. Yeah, uh, so, so for Joshua, I think we will go back to the Philippine court if you will enforce the U.S. order to divide the ownership of the Philippine company. Yes, so again, it would be similar to uh, the first scenario. Uh, a Philippine court will uh, be open to, in, to recognizing and enforcing a, a U.S. court order or decree, uh, subject, however, to the proper proceedings uh, for the interested party uh, to prove that uh, the decree or the order secured from, from a foreign court uh, meets uh, certain standards for it to be recognized and enforced in the Philippines. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, um, whether the U.S. court can seek uh, to vary terms of Singapore, Hong, uh, Hong Kong trust, and whether Singapore and Hong Kong law provide relevant firewall protections. I think, um, Zach, what's your comments on, on, on these two questions? 
Yeah, I think <clears throat> probably John will say that the US court would probably look at the case of um, having some authority to vary the trust, probably not going to be as um, as active as the UK courts have tried to be in the past on these things. From a firewall protection, no, we don't have in Singapore and Hong Kong specific firewall protections, um, sort of modernized firewall protections that you would find in, in some of the other international financial centers. Singapore is very much aligned with the, the sort of UK, New Zealand, Australian sort of approach of being sort of a, a jurisdiction that doesn't um, have all of the array of protections that are, that are springing up. So what would happen in Singapore, it'd be a very unusual circumstance because generally you're looking at money judgments being recognized. In this case, you're looking at a variation order. So I think it would be a matter of committee um, between the jurisdictions as to whether or not a Singapore or Hong Kong court would want to help and assist a US court in its matrimonial um, sort of regime environment and its enforcement in seeking to vary a trust. But I, I, there's no frontline protections in either jurisdiction dealing with what they call personal relationship protections. And one of which is the marriage or the consequences of a dissolution of marriage. So no firewall, but you would still have to get through on the basis that there's not going to be an automatic recognition of uh, a money judgment order here because there's no money involved as such. It's a, it's a variation request. But um, yeah, it would, be, it would be an area that would have to be falling on Singapore courts and Hong Kong courts looking at the US and, um, and seeking to help them out in this instance. So the more egregious the, uh, the, the status of the divorce, if Nelson is hiding assets and being quite difficult in the US proceedings, let's say, then generally um, common law courts will look unfavorably at a divorcing spouse trying to do that. And that's been the case in, um, in, in some of the Jersey judgments that they don't want to help someone who's actively trying to frustrate another jurisdiction's court's um, attempt to you know, reconcile the parties and, and make a, a clean break. Well, um, let's look at the foreign succession after covering the um, divorce um, issues. Um, for foreign succession issues and consideration for Nelson's um, and his family is uh, possibly what we're going to look at here. Now, um, for this slide, we're going to look at a couple mm. of like which succession law will apply uh, to Nelson U.S. property. Um, Nelson has a dual citizenship here, um, if we notice, both Philippines as well as the U.S. Will Eleanor, Angel and Justin be entitled to fix foreheadship shares in the U.S. estate? And can Nelson, the deceased, um, leave his U.S. estate by will? John, can you help us out with these three questions? Sure. So similar to, to what we've already kind of covered, succession law in the U.S. covered on a state-by-state -state basis. When it comes to immovable property like the land, very likely that the state law would govern that succession in the absence of some type of testamentary document like a like a, a foreign will um, on the immovable property maybe less likely but still a possibility in the absence of some type of foreign document that's presented as far as the um, heirs as i mentioned no forced heirship in the u.s although from a statutory perspective, spouses tend to be um, the ones who do get protected when there is a law, not children. So uh, Eleanor in this instant might have um, some state relief claim uh, depending upon the location of, uh, of the property in the US. And then can uh, the, the property be left 
by will, absolutely, um, but you need to be careful and coordinate. When we say um, have a separate will for the U.S. assets, that doesn't mean just see a U.S. practitioner and don't loop them into the overall uh, situation because as Joshua has mentioned, there could be a foreign um, succession law that, that reaches out and governs those U.S. assets. So yes, involve a U.S. attorney, draft up potentially um, a separate will, maybe a combined one, although it's less likely in a situation where you have one civil law jurisdiction, one common law. If they're both common law, like Singapore and the U.S., sometimes can, can find our way through one will, but typically with, with two different jurisdictions like Philippines and the US, we have to go with two separate documents, but they should be reviewed by each council to make sure that we're not making any contradictory assignments. Um, okay, so for the next slide, so which succession law will apply then to the Philippines company shares? And can any surviving family members make a Philippine force hair claim against the Philippine Trust or the company? Um, and also, will there be estate tax liability in the US or the Philippines or both? So uh, Joshua, can you help us out with these three questions? Yes, uh, so for uh, the succession law, uh, in the eyes of uh, Philippine law, uh, Nelson continues to be a Philippine citizen having acquired dual citizenship. So in the eyes of Philippine law, uh, uh, Philippine succession law uh, still governs him and success, the, that succession law will apply as well to the Philippine company shares. So having said that, uh, any family member or uh, a forced heir or a compulsory heir of, of, of Nelson uh, can stake that claim against the Philippine trust or the Philippine company shares on the basis that they are uh, if a compulsory or forced heir and uh, are entitled to, to legitimes under uh, Philippine Civil Code. And the estate liability, the tax. Uh, yeah, for the last. Yeah. Yes, for the estate and tax liability, uh, the answer for that would be uh, would be a James. Uh, sorry, Nelson in this case. Uh, since he is still considered as a Philippine citizen under uh, Philippine law. So uh, he will be liable for estate tax for all of his properties, whether located here in the Philippines or abroad. Right. Yeah, and let me chime in from a U.S. perspective there. As a, a citizen, as I mentioned, U.S. citizens are considered to be domiciled in the U.S. regardless of where in the world they're living. So he would be subject to the U.S. estate tax uh, on his worldwide holdings, not just the U.S. Uh, assets. Uh, however, U.S. persons who are U.S. domiciled for estate tax purposes get a much higher exemption amount, currently 11.8 million. So you would look at the total assets that he held at his death. If they were less than 11.8 million, there wouldn't be a U.S. estate tax exposure. If it's more than 11.8 million, there would be, and then there wouldn't be a credit for the taxes paid in Philippines. So the, what we talked about earlier, you would pay the U.S. tax first, and then I think Joshua can confirm there would be a credit in the Philippines, and so you wouldn't end up with a double uh, payment situation, but you got to sequence it correctly. Yes, that's correct, uh, John. Uh, so definitely uh, that procedure would uh, work best uh, for the heirs, uh, for them to pay the estate 
taxes first in the U.S. and then claim that as a credit uh, under Philippine estate tax law. So, um, can um, can the surviving family members actually make false hair claim against the Singapore and the Hong Kong Trust under the Philippine law? And what anti-false hair protections are provided under the Singapore and Hong Kong law? Uh, maybe we can have Joshua. Um, answering the first questions in terms of the Philippine law. Yes, so I think we've uh, touched on this uh, briefly uh, during the first portion of the webinar. So uh, as I said, Philippines being a civil law jurisdiction, we have the concept of forced heir and legitimate uh, forced chair. So uh, the surviving heirs of Nelson can definitely make that claim, uh, claiming that uh, the Hong Kong trusts the properties under the Hong Kong Trust actually form part of the estate of, uh, of Nelson and which should be included in the distribution of uh, the estate among, among the heirs. Yeah, I think they're probably not going to be successful. The, uh, the trusts, the assets are held in the jurisdictions so in Hong Kong and Singapore, their respective liquidity is held in the very same jurisdictions that have the anti-force their protections. So I think even if they were to launch those claims, they wouldn't be successful. The local courts wouldn't recognize their rights to effectively claw back out of the trusts those, um, those particular assets. Now, um, just to recap, I think in, for case study one, we, we were looking at domestic. Um, and for case study two, we are looking purely into foreign assets. And, and lastly, for this uh, foreign aspects, we are looking into the community property law. Now, let's look at the foreign community property rules. Um, does Eleanor actually has the same community property rights as a U.S. person? Now, how would the U.S. community property rules apply? Um, and is it possible to enter into a pre- and post-nuptial agreement to vary community property rights? And can U.S. community property rights enforce against the trust and property in the Philippines? So, um, John. Yeah, so, so we've we touched on these concepts earlier. I think the very important things to keep in mind are, um, you know, which state definitions might apply and understand that states have widely varying definitions of marital proper property. So a Texas would have a narrow definition that would not include as much property automatically into community property as, say, the community property approach in California, a much broader um, definition. So uh, the answers here, yes, U.S. community property rules could very well apply depending upon when the marriage occurred, uh, where they were living when um, Nelson passed away and where the property is located. Um, a pre or post nuptial agreement could impact that if it were executed properly and it, it, it hit those four triggers that I mentioned earlier. And then enforcement, um, absolutely. It comes down to Hague Convention treatment and particular treaties in place to respect um, judicial uh, uh, proceedings in the offshore jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we have one more question. So, can the U.S. community rights be enforced against the Singapore and the Hong Kong Trust? Uh, Zach, would you like to? Yeah, same issue again. These are, would be characterized as proprietary rights, so they wouldn't be arising on um, on succession. They'd be seen as ownership rights. Um, they're certainly not going to be recognized as. They, they won't be characterized as a matrimonial 
um, sort of ancillary relief claim, so a court order, it would just be seen as this is part of Eleanor's property, according to her uh, matrimonial domicile in the US of the particular state. And again, there's, there's no protections for that because it's dealing with someone's rights to their own property. So there, there wouldn't be a firewall protection against that. Right. Now, um, we'll come to our case study three. Now, for case study three, um, we are, we are going to look at the immigration um, aspects um, for Vincent. Actually, Vincent um, and Dana actually are Philippine citizens. So, domicile in the Philippines uh, with their son as well. Now, they do have trading companies, same class of assets. They have land and properties. They have uh, depository accounts. Uh, corner standard assets um, of a, a high net worth family. Now they are looking into moving to EU um, uh, citizens and domicile. Now, uh, many of such families have various reasons uh, to move. Um, so Scott, could you help us here in terms of helping us to understand what are the reasons and some of the motivations that um, um, similar family to Vincent's um, look to migrate overseas. Absolutely. Thank you, Mary. Citizenship and residence uh, must be a part of family planning, not only for the soft benefits of travel freedom, settlement freedom, access to better education and healthcare and tax planning, but also for unpredictable and more devastating events as we are seeing right now with this global health pandemic, um, as we could potentially see with political upheaval or even in the worst case scenario, war. Um, when these unpredictable events happen, if the family doesn't already have a plan B, then it's already too late. Right. Um, and um, is that a danger of a program. I mean, th there's generally many programs in the EU. So, um, and all these programs that has been launched, are there annual quotas or number of applications received based on nationality quotas? And once these are reached, um, are there dangers that such programs may be terminated? External liquidity is going to be valid for countries in a post-COVID-19 era. So these programs are definitely here to stay. If we're looking at precedent, the programs in Europe exist because of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, the Caribbean countries were able to rebuild because they had citizenship by investment programs. And finally, Malta has, for the first time ever, dipped into its citizenship by investment fund to keep the country and the economy afloat right now. Hmm. So in your experience, do, you, do applicants intend to relocate or actually they still intend to stay in the Philippines? Um, our clients are looking to maintain their residence in the Philippines because they have businesses. Um, they need to be on the ground. Um, so they maintain their tax residence, uh, but citizenship by investment bypasses naturalization. So instead of having to relocate themselves and their entire families to serve time in a country to obtain the passport, they can invest and get the plan B without having to move. Mm. And what are the most popular programs? And can you give us an idea about how much it will cost? Sure. 
If we go to the next slide here, these are by no means an exhaustive list of the programs we offer, but these are the most popular ones. Um, what we're going to see uh, if we're having this presentation next year or the year after is this list is certainly going to grow as more countries are going to be seeking uh, external liquidity. Um, these programs are both residence and citizenship by investment, so it's important to distinguish the difference between both of them. Residence uh, will get you the ability to live in one single country and often will uh, give you a tax uh, advantage if you settle in the right place. But if we go to the next slide, um, citizenship, this is a permanent state when you're protected under the constitution of the country, you have full voting rights, but in many cases, you don't even have to visit the country to obtain the passport. Instead, through a donation to government or property investment, you can uh, obtain the citizenship in a very short amount of time. Now, as you'll see, the range in uh, pricing uh, varies between a hundred thousand US dollar donation all the way up to a three million euro investment. The main difference being um, if you have a European Union passport, you have settlement freedom in uh, the entire European Union. And in a post COVID-19 era, clients are really going to be looking for assured world-class healthcare and having settlement freedom in the European Union will give them access to this healthcare. Keep in mind that with current travel suspended, medical tourism is also suspended. Um, the question that we need to ask ourselves, is domestic healthcare adequate for clients in the Philippines? Right. Thank you, Scott. And uh, I think with that, we have come to the end of our roundtable session. Thank you so much to our panelists for the rightful, uh, insightful sharing of your expert opinion. Now, we would like to open up for our Q&A session. Um, maybe, Zach, you can take the lead for over to you. Yeah, I think we can all um, open up the, the Q&As that have been um, uh, clicking through during the, um, the roundtable. Um, I, can, I can go perhaps to the... Uh, the top one. I think we, we probably answered this during the, the roundtable, which is going to have clarification again on the forced airship that the wife will get 50% due to community property rule upon demise at the beginning, uh, because Joshua mentioned that the wife will get one third of the share, uh, with the other two thirds split going to the kids in the absence of a will. How would the community property rule apply um, uh, with a will and without a will? So I think this is the question that I think we answered, which was how do you work out what's the free estate subject to forced air and what's the community estate? And I think, um, Josh, wasn't it correct that we were splitting first and then sub-splitting afterwards, right? That's that correct. So question. what happens at, the, at, the, at that point of that, you divide the estate into two. So 50% automatically goes to the surviving spouse. So what will be divided and subject of the division among the heirs would just be the 50%. Right, right. Okay. And then there's a further question. Are the forced airship rules enforceable in the Philippines by non-Philippine citizens? 
Um, so uh, presumably this is a, 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 um, a person who has property in the Philippines, although they're not a Philippine citizen, but will they be, um, so they're from another nationality, will they be subjected to the same forced air rules with respect to their Philippine situst property? So I think that's for you, Josh, I think. So this yeah. is a case where you've got a foreign national owning property in the Philippines. Okay, so uh, because uh, you are a foreign national, so your uh, own succession laws uh, should apply. And therefore, uh, if your jurisdiction does not have a forced airship uh, uh, regime, then uh, you, the forced airship rules in the Philippines uh, should, should not apply. Now, twisting this a bit, if you are a, a foreign citizen who happens to be a compulsory heir or a forced heir of a Philippine citizen, then you can definitely uh, make a, a forced heir claim under Philippine law. Right, right. You know that we get these odd situations where you have a, uh, a non-Philippine national, but a Philippine domiciliary, and the Philippines will go, oh, we're going to look to your, your nationality jurisdiction, and then, the, then the, the jurisdiction of nationality will look to your domicile, and it brings it back to the Philippines. So you've got a non-Philippine citizen owning Philippine property, but domicile in the Philippines. So the Philippines looks at the nationality country and that country says, no, 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 succession law is where he's domiciled. Does, does that happen in practice in the Philippines? They would accept the, um, the, the, the succession law coming back. Well, yes, uh, for as long as uh, the parties are able to prove that uh, the foreign uh, courts have actually yeah. uh, thrown back the issue to the Philippine courts. Right, right. okay. We got one for um, for John. Um, I am a U.S. citizen and considering marrying a Philippine citizen. Uh, we would get married in the U.S. and reside in the U.S.A., but not decide on uh, which state. Would a U.S. prenup agreement be enough to honor uh, the same agreement under Philippine law? So a bit of yes, I think it's for I think it's for Joshua, um, and I I suspect we'll be in a good position because of those slightly more onerous rules that I outlined, but I'll leave it to Joshua to kind of address that. Okay. A, they would be getting married in the U.S., right? Okay. Mm. And residing in the USA. Yeah. So uh, a U.S. Uh, prenup uh, executed in, in the United States uh, in this case would, I think, be honored by, uh, by Philippine courts subject, of course, to, to proof of, uh, of the, the law applicable. So uh, this should be okay, yes. Okay, and then we've got a subsequent one, final one, which is just talking about the prenuptial arrangements being respected um, in the Philippines. Um, this is actually a spin on this. So what if we have a situation where the couple, for whatever reason, there was a marriage annulment, but they had entered into a prenuptial agreement Remember when we did the annulment, we said that the, the de facto position would be 50-50. But if they had sort of erroneously entered into a prenuptial prior to the annulment, would that be respected? Or would, it, would they say, you're not prenupping anything because it didn't exist? This would be... So, yeah. I'm just going through the, the questions uh, that have been posted. Uh, Sorry. 
So this is where I'm just, uh, so I'm, I'm extrapolating on that question on the prenups okay. we recognize and saying, what is the case where we have an annulment, but prior to the annulment, we actually had a prenup um, trying to govern how the assets would be divided. Is it usual to have a provision in the prenup that says in the event of annulment, this is how we hold? Yes, actually, uh, I think I've touched on that on uh, my discussions at prenuptial agreement. Uh, the parties actually have a free hand on how to craft their property regime. So for as long as uh, those provisions would not uh, run contrary to any provision of law uh, under the Philippine uh, context, uh, then that should be okay. Right, right. Okay. Um, I think that's pretty much all of, the, all of the questions that we've got on this. And I think that's pretty good because I think we're almost out of time anyway. Um, any any last thoughts from from anyone on on the uh, on the panel on this? Just running through. Um, I mean, I got the question for Scott. Just on, you know, we've got this European uh, Commission who've been agitating about the sale of EU citizenship, and the, 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 they they tend not to like it because they see that you know all the all the relevant member states are not involved in conferring the European Union citizenship when places like Malta, Cyprus, Bulgaria, et cetera, sell these passports. Um, what's been the progress on that, that line of argument that without having EU unified rules on this, that these programs may be subject to some cancellation down the road? I, I understand what you said about the COVID-19, but there's also that broad sentiment from the EU Commission that they don't like EU citizenship being sold without the whole union being involved on Who's it, who it's being sold to because of the rights to roam around. Yeah, yeah, yeah so absolutely. What's your thoughts on that, Scott? Uh, there is actually a thorough investigation by the European Commission into these citizenship programs last year. Uh, and the report that came out uh, showed exactly what we knew all along. And uh, of course, we know this very well because we designed these programs. The checks and balances in place the amount of uh, KYC and due diligence that any individual has to go through to obtain European citizenship is, is staggering. Uh, they're very detailed and it's very uh, unlikely that a bad apple would get through the net. Also, it's uh, every European country's sovereign right to have one of these programs. And because um, because of the need for liquidity, as I said before, we're going to see more European countries coming out with either residence or citizenship programs. Right, right. Okay. A couple more, just, just a couple on the ending here. Um, for assets injected into an irrevocable offshore trust, is there a gift tax element with respect to the Philippine set law? So on the Philippine law with an inter vivos transfer attract um, lifetime tax? Yes, uh, this, as I think I have discussed during the course of the webinar, uh, any transfer of property to the trust would be considered as a donation inter vivos during the lifetime of, of the settler or the trustor. And mm -hmm. under Philippine law, that is subject to a uh, donors or gift, gift tax of 6%, a flat rate of 6%. Right, right. And uh, here's, I think what this question is asking is, if we have a Philippine marriage celebrated in the Philippines, 
and then the couple move away from the Philippines into a new jurisdiction where they then subsequently get a divorce. How will that work in terms of the division of property? Okay. Uh, several questions would need to be asked. Mm. At the point of divorce, were they still Filipino citizens? If they were, it will not be recognized as valid here in the Philippines. However, yes. if they uh, secured the divorce decree at a point where they were already a naturalized uh, citizen of that foreign country, then a divorce decree that is issued in their favor may be recognized here in the Philippines. So the rule here is as long as it's valid there, valid here in the Philippines. Right. The key thing is you've got to give up your citizenship um, if, you, if you're going to try and achieve that, right? That's correct. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it for, um, for, for the questions. Sorry, a couple more questions, but I'm sure if, um, if there's any more, please, you, you, um, you're going to get, if you wish, copies of the recording as well as the, the contact details for, for all of us. I'd encourage any attendees who, um, who wish to follow up, please do. And I'm sure everyone will be quite happy to answer your questions as long as they're not too technical in nature and don't result in legal advice, okay? So thanks very much everyone for, um, for attending and lending your time and listening to us. Um, hope you found this useful. And um, yeah, look forward to you guys attending on subsequent virtual round tables. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye -bye Have a nice day. Keep safe. Thank you.